You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Ben McPherson, a television producer, director, and writer. He lives in Oslo with his wife and son. He studied modern languages at King's College, Cambridge, and worked for many years with the BBC and other film and television production companies. I was, as you say, for a long time a TV producer, and then we found ourselves moving to Norway for what we thought was going to be six months and turned out to be eight years and counting. And one of the things that really struck me, we went over there to have our son, and as soon as our son was born, I was struck with this immense sense of just how easy it would be to get all this stuff wrong. Oh, parenting? Parenting, yeah. So you stayed? Yeah, Because we you felt like you'd, the odds increased in your favor in that location? Well, no, what was very odd was that we went over there to have our son. We were going to move back after six months. And then my wife got sick. Uh, our son was eight weeks old and she was diagnosed with cancer. And we had dropped everything in the UK with the plan just to pick it all up again after yeah. a few months' time. And suddenly we were in this, for me, foreign country with no jobs. And Charlotte was seriously ill. She was very seriously ill. She was having radiotherapy. Um, it was all just tough. And so suddenly I find myself um, in this weird situation where I had complete responsibility for a child, complete responsibility for my wife. All at once. Uh, she couldn't really do an awful lot at the time. She was taking morphine. We couldn't have him in the bed with us in case she crushed him. It was just, yeah. it was a tough time. And I guess that meant that I was thinking a lot about the responsibilities of fatherhood. And about two years into our time there, I started to think, well, am I going to be going back to television? I don't know. And I just had this kind of beginning of an idea about a man and a woman and a child, and that they've drifted into parenthood and drifted into marriage. And then suddenly something brings them up short and they realize that they may have made a very serious mistake. And so this led to your writing Line of Blood. It led to me writing the first few chapters, yeah. I wrote the first four chapters, I guess about five years ago now. And then I went back and worked at the BBC for a while. I was commuting from Norway, which is something I really don't recommend. It was a bad idea. So I worked at the BBC again for a couple of years, just getting back into the process of working again. And then we were in Norway on our wedding anniversary in 2011, the 22nd of July, and a bomb went off in Oslo. Mm -hmm. And shortly after the bomb went off, we started to get reports that there, were, there was a shooting on a nearby island, and a very major shooting. And it turned out that Anders Bering Breivik, a very dangerous man, had murdered eight people in a government building and then another 69 people on the island, most of them children. And that brought me up short. I'd been feeling very unsure about Norway as a country, and suddenly you're in this place and it gets attacked, and you think, there's something here that I really care about. Right. Um, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was here 
in New York when the towers went down. And it's a very similar feeling, I think. He suddenly felt kind of rooted in New York. And I, I felt that same thing about mm. being in Norway and suddenly thinking, actually, I'm really angry about this. This place matters. And I stopped working at the BBC. And a year later, I covered the trial for this small internet newspaper. Oh, you did? And was in the courtroom with this guy day in, day out. And also, I think, got into the habit of writing in quite a condensed way. And under deadline. And under deadline. And my wife, at the end of that, just said, look, why don't you finish your novel? And so I did. And it was the most wonderful thing. So you finished the novel, Line of Blood, that published by William Morrow. Tell us about the tribe that is the family in this book and what threatens to break them up. Okay, Alex's tribe is... I guess the three of them, it's him, it's his wife Millicent, who's an American woman who's kind of always slightly on the run from something, slightly on the run from Alex, slightly on the run from her role as mother and wife, not quite comfortable in her own skin. Um, And it's their son, Max. And they love each other very, very deeply, all three of them. But I guess they've never taken stock of their situation. They've never stopped to say, okay, so what's it mean to be a parent now? And they know that what they hate is... The two previous generations, really. They don't, they don't want to be hippie parents. They don't want to be authoritarian parents, but they don't know where that leaves them. So they're quite cynical people. So you sat down and you started to write. And as I understand it, you wrote many drafts. I think that the book is published is probably the eighth draft. In fact, I did another short redraft for my American editor, David. So I guess, you know, <laughs> nine drafts is what we're seeing here. But I was learning my craft you know, and I think that the first draft was not bad, but it wasn't good enough to be published. And after about four drafts, then it was good enough, I think, to start getting interest from agents. I rewrote it twice for my UK agent, and then I got a book deal in the UK, and I rewrote it twice for my UK editor, and then I thought I was finished. And no, then I you got, always think you're finished. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable how often... And I don't think people uh, sort of bring up this fact that, yeah, it's it's not uncommon to write it five, six times, right? No, I mean, you know, there are some authors who just produce a draft and that's the book. Very rarely, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think there's an awful lot of lying yeah. that goes on there. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But I actually think that the redrafting is where you find the characters and find the plot. You know, I mean, I, I'm about the stage in my second book where I have a rough first draft And it's only when I start to get the first draft finished that I start to think, yeah, actually, that's who that person is. That's how they would behave. So tell us a little bit about this plot. I know you can't tell us too much because it's so suspenseful and and so intricate. Okay, well, it's about a family, a small middle-class family, three people. And they are good people, but they're quite cynical people as well. You know, they've had quite a tough time. And they live in a very small house in a, in a neighbourhood which is being gentrified, but it's never quite coming up. You also have a kind of old working-class element to the neighbourhood, people who've just seen this stuff going on for ages. And then you have the three of them, and they are, all of them, quite bruised, really, I guess. And Alex has always thought of himself as being a good father and has always thought of himself as being a good husband, And he's about to be confronted, I think, with quite a lot of evidence that he's maybe not either such a good guy or such a good father or such a good husband as he's believed. And And what sets it in motion? The thing that sets that in motion 
the inciting incident is that on a summer's night, he and his son go looking for the cat, and they go into the next-door neighbour's house because the door is ajar. And upstairs in the next-door neighbour's house, they find the next-door neighbour dead in the bath. And Alex realises far too late that his son is standing behind him and that he's seen everything. So he thinks that his main problem is going to be, I've shown my son this terrible, terrible thing. How do I stop it from ruining his life? He doesn't realise that his wife knew this man very well indeed and that his problems are only just starting. They're only just starting. <laughs> and it, it's, it's a very suspenseful read. It's a real, real page-turner. Now, tell me a little bit about the setting, because you very specifically put it in this neighborhood, as you described, that's sort of on the cusp of gentrification, and it, it and it's sort of drawn together this mix of people. Why, why was that important to you, that setting? I think the reason it's important is that you live in a part of London that doesn't interfere in your life, so they can get on with their lives, they can be who they want to be, which is great while well, everything's going fine. Uh, these people are not that interested in them as people. But there's not a lot of help to be had. Mm. And these are all, all three of them people who are adrift, really. They, when things are going well for them, it suits them not really to be known by their neighbours. But as soon as mm. things start to go badly wrong, they don't have a lot of support network. And I think that lack of support network was really important because what you want to do as a writer is cast people adrift. Right. And these people are very adrift. Yeah. And one of the things that they have to learn, I suppose, is how to reconnect to each other and to a, oh, a wider absolutely. world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there, um, an, another theme throughout is sort of the known and the unknown, and as it specifically relates to secrets, you know, sort of who's divulging exactly what to whom. Well, and their neighbours hear things, they hear things about the neighbours. Yes. There is a whole lot of that stuff going on. And I guess one of the main issues, of course, is that something has been going on in the house next door for quite a long time. And Alex has known nothing about it. And what you have then is this area where there are lots of secrets, but also these very thin walls. So someone or some people have been hearing far more than they should have been hearing through the walls. And some people might have willfully or somewhat willfully not heard it. Absolutely, yes. So is this it? You're a novelist full-time? Are you going back to television writing? How do you feel about the, the nature of your work these days? I mean, the thing that I like best, I think, in all the world is sitting down writing more than anything else, sitting down working on a novel manuscript. I have sold recently a TV idea with a friend of mine, but I would like to do, you know, I, I hope I can carry on writing novels. It's the best thing I've done. You uh, like that the best, despite its sort of isolated requirements, you know, the requirements to, you know, to missed, sit quietly yeah. and do that in, in the non-collaborative nature of it compared, obviously, to, to TV, which is so much more collaborative. Yeah, I miss... What I miss from television is the collaboration. I loved working with really talented people and feeling that my work was better for working with them. And I guess it is lonely writing a novel, but it turns out I actually quite like sitting for a long time, not doing very much and just thinking... You know, which is a great privilege. You know, it's a yeah. lovely thing to be able to do. And who are some of your who who have you been influenced by as authors? I mean, 
Really let me let me I'm going to answer your own question. So I've read you I've heard you say I read in an interview that you said that aliens was one of the most influential things. Oh, the alien, movie, the alien. original alien. Yeah. Yes. Alien, excuse me. Yeah. Yes, alien. And tell us why. I mean, it's a world away or galaxies away from this book. But what that film has is a purity that I think is just amazing and really instructive for any writer of fiction because you have this first act where you don't know what it is that's menacing the crew of the ship. You just know it's bad. So you have your unknown antagonist, and you don't really know who your hero is going to be at this stage at all. Then in your second act, you then have the emergence of the alien. You start to see more and more of it, although I think Ridley Scott's very careful to make sure that it looks different each time you see it. And you also have the slow emergence of your hero or the heroine, Ripley, And then in the final act, the confrontation, your antagonist meets your protagonist face to face. And it's really spare. And it's really a beautifully, beautifully realized film. And it just scares me. It really. Every time. Yeah, every time. Yeah, and I, I used to play it to myself almost on a loop when right. I was trying to write scary scenes, not because there was anything in common between what my characters were experiencing and these other characters. But fear, I think, is an emotion that is quite universal. I also used to play the music from Psycho to myself, almost (laughs) on a loop at lunchtimes. And the first time I did that, we have three cats. Oh, yeah, what did they do? I've never seen cats react to music before. Did they jump straight up? No, it was amazing. They they all sort of came in around the overture and sort of were milling around. And then as it starts to build, they were sort of behaving a little weirdly. And I was just thinking, nah, this is just my imagination. But you know the way that it builds those very jagged chords in the shower scene? The cats got down very, very low. They made themselves really low, and they started sort of swinging their heads slowly from side to side, looking at each other. And then they started to make this sort of weird moaning, growling sound. You think there is something about this music that just crosses. He knew what he was doing. But yet you played it routinely after that, even after that. I mean, it's that thing that I think sometimes it's useful to try and think yourself into a state of mind. Yeah. You know, and... I hope that some of that then seeps through into the writing and that it It scares other people. It did. Now, what was the last book that you had a conversation about? And what what did you discuss? Do you remember? No, that's an interesting question. I mean, the last book that I recommended to someone was Sentimental Education by Flaubert, which is a very, well, a relatively old book, a 19th century book about a man who learns nothing at all about the life of the senses over the course of 600 pages. But... I was recommending it simply because um, it's a very funny book. I had always hated 19th century French literature up to that point, and then someone said, read this, and I laughed and laughed and laughed all the way through. That kind of changed things for me. All right, now I believe that you would like to read a passage, so please tell us a little bit about where we are in the story and what you're about to read, and I'm so excited to hear you read it. What I'd like to read to you is the moment where Alex and his son Max go into the next-door neighbor's house And these are London houses. They're terraced houses. They're very small. And Alex doesn't know even if they should be in the house. They've gone to look for the cat. The cat has slipped in past them. The back door is open. And Alex and Max follow the cat into the house. And Alex suddenly finds himself feeling that they've trespassed into a place where they shouldn't be. Max left the room. I looked back to where the cat had been standing, but she was no longer there. I could hear him calling to her, a gentle clicking noise at the back of his throat. I followed him into the living room. Max was already at the central light switch. 
Our neighbour had added a plaster ceiling rose and an antique crystal chandelier, which hung too low, dominating the little room. The neighbour had used low-energy bulbs in the chandelier, and they flicked into life, sending ugly ovoids of light up the seamless walls. What was this? And where was the cat? Max found a second switch, and the bottom half of the room was lit by bulbs in the floor and skirting. Pick up the cat, Max, man. Time to go. He made a gesture, arms open, palm up. Then he held up his hand. Listen, he seemed to be saying. And listen, I did. A dog. Traffic. A rooftop crow. People walked past. Voices low, their shoes scuffing the pavement. These houses should have front yards, Millicent would say. It's like people walking through your living room. You could hear them so clearly, all those bad kids and badder adults. The change in their pockets, the phlegm in their throats, the half-whispered street deals, and the Coke can football matches. It was all so unbearably close. But there was something else, too. A dull, rhythmic tapping that I couldn't place, couldn't decipher. Max had located it, though. He pointed to the brown leather sofa. A dark stain was spreading out across the central cushion. I looked at Max. Max looked at me. Water, said Max. Water dripping onto the leather sofa. Yes, that was the sound. Max looked up. I looked up. The plaster of the ceiling was bowing. No crack was visible, but at the lowest point, water was gathering, gathering and falling in metronomic drops, beating out time on the wet leather below. Now I could see the cat. She was halfway up the staircase, watching the tracks of water through the air. Max and I looked at each other. I could read nothing in my son's expression beyond a certain patient expectancy. Maybe you should shout up to him, Dad, in case he's here. Maybe I should. Maybe I should have shouted louder as I'd skulked by the back door, because standing here in his living room, looking up his stairs towards the first floor, it felt a little late to be alerting him to our presence. Hello? Nothing. It's Alex, from next door. Alex and Max, I shouted up. We've come to get our cat. Nothing. Water falling against leather. Another street dog. I looked again at Max. You go first, Dad. He was right. I couldn't send him upstairs in front of me. I had always suspected overly tidy men of having dark secrets in the bedroom. Maybe he left a tap on, I said quietly. Maybe. Max wrinkled his nose. All right, stay there. I saw the cat's tail curl around a banister. I headed slowly up the stairs. A click, and the landing light came on. Max had found that switch, too. Two rooms at the back, two at the front just like ours. At the back, the bathroom and the master bedroom. At the front, the second bedroom, and a tiny room that only estate agents could call a bedroom. The cat was gone. The bathroom door was open. The neighbour was in the bathtub, on his back, his legs and arms thrown out at discordant angles. His nakedness was angry, brittle, tendons drawn tight as if something in his body was broken and could not be repaired. His mouth was open, his lips drawn back in a rictus of pain. His eyes seemed held together by some unseen force. The left eye was shot through with blood. Blood was gathering around his nostrils, too. I did not retch, or cover my eyes, or cry, or do any of the thousand things you're supposed to do. Instead, and I say this with some shame, I heard and felt myself laugh. Perhaps it was the disordering of the body, so lifelike, yet so utterly without life, like a doll, abandoned in a corner. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. That sets it all up, and it's a fantastic read from there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.